A few years ago, someone bought a secondhand book and within that book discovered a handwritten letter from C.S. Lewis. How awesome would that be? Now this good Samaritan handed it in to the historians and whatnot. Uh, but this, this letter was written a few years before Lewis wrote his memoir, Surprised by Joy. And in it, this is what Lewis writes. Real joy, real joy, jumps under one's ribs and tickles down one's back and makes one forget meals and keeps one delightedly sleepless o' nights. A few years later, when Lewis finally writes his memoir, Surprised by Joy, he says this, Joy must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and pleasure. Joy has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt with whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power and pleasure often is. I want that sort of joy, don't you? I want that joy that goes under my ribs and goes beyond happiness and pleasure. I want to experience the joy that is a sensational feeling, yet at the same time beyond any feelings we could ever muster up on our own. But Lewis captures the tension of joy, doesn't he? He says, it's beyond our control. It's never in our power, whereas pleasure is. And that's the fundamental difference between joy and happiness. We have some control over our experience of happiness, but joy is a little more elusive. And so before we go any further into a sermon this morning, I just want to define happiness and joy so that we're on the same page. Happiness is something that is temporary. It comes and it goes, and we all know this. And happiness is often anchored in the world outside of ourselves. It, it, you know, we feel happy when our team wins the pennant. Any Cubs fans here? No, of course not. We're in Vancouver. But that was a pretty happy moment. Uh, we feel happy when we accomplish a goal or when the scale is in our favor. We feel happy when we have a good meal. But happiness, this sort of happiness, cannot be sustained when the storms of life come our way. You see, the previous pathways to happiness no longer work when we suffer loss and grief because happiness is temporary. Joy is a state. And it includes the feeling of happiness, but it goes beyond it. Joy is an internal state deep within our souls and well beyond the influences of the outer world. But contrary to happiness, Joy can bring contentment even in the midst of suffering and loss because joy is something that lasts. John Piper, who always looks like this when we talk about when he talks about joy, uh, says this about Christian joy. Christian joy is the good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ. So bringing all these different thoughts together, Christian joy is a gift from God. It's the gift of seeing the beauty of Christ. And when we truly experience this joy in our souls, we wouldn't exchange it for all of the pleasures the world has to offer. Because it lasts even in our suffering, and it will be our constant state in eternity. And so I've labored somewhat up front uh, about what it means uh, to pursue joy and what joy even is, because I want to speak about joy as we celebrate our third anniversary this morning. 
Over the past year, as you know, we labored somewhat extensively to develop our values as a community. What makes us tick? How do we live as a community? How do we pursue our vision? And I love our values, but in my opinion, the pinnacle value of them all is the joy of salvation. This is the value at at one point is, yes, we want that, but we also know we're aspiring to it. We see it in our lives, but we also know we want more of it. And it's one of the values out of all of our values where we're completely helpless and we have to say, Lord, grant us this joy. And so there's this creative tension within the value of the joy of salvation. And St. Peter's, for me, has been a journey of discovering the joy of salvation, the depth of this value. Many of you know, and some of you may not, that I have journeyed with you through depression and even came close to burnout. And yet even in that space and its continued challenges in my life, I've been surprised by joy. And so I just want to speak to you if you're feeling defensive or tense when the topic of joy comes up. If joy isn't your baseline, that's okay. Now, there's a lot of complicated factors that can inhibit us from experiencing joy, but I do pray that this this sermon would be hope-inducing for you because you're not beyond joy. Because joy shows no partiality when it comes to people and their circumstances, be it the challenges they face in the world or the challenges we face with our mental health. Now, some of you also know uh, that while planting St. Peter's, I became a dad. I had zero children when we started, now I have two. Uh, And there is a sense of joy, I feel, in Ansley and Maggie, a joy that they simply exist instead of not existing, a joy in being their father. And, And this has become a bit of the baseline of joy for me because it's a part of my everyday reality. And similarly, I experience a joy over you, over our very existence of a church. That we exist at all is remarkable to me, and that I had a part to play in it is a great gift from our Father. But the joy of salvation, the joy of salvation is well beyond either of these experiences of joy, as beautiful as they may be. It's bigger, it's more enduring, more beautiful, and more readily available than we might even realize. And so over the past year, I've been reflecting about legacy. You know, what would I like to leave to my family? What would I like to leave to our church and to the world? And it's this, the joy of salvation. I want to raise a family and a church that experiences the joy of salvation for the sake of the world. And I'm more and more convinced that in our urban context, In our world of instant gratification and the resulting cynicism of seeing that everything we're going after doesn't satisfy, one of our greatest witnesses to the beauty of Christ is his joy in a world that is desperate for it. So this morning, we're going to put down the Gospel of Mark, which we've been journeying through, and and explore one big idea that that I sincerely hope will define us as a church, not just for the next year, but for generations to come. So here's our big idea this morning. We delight in the Lord as the Lord delights in us. We delight in the Lord as the Lord delights in us. And while a great deal is said throughout scriptures about this big idea, we're going to turn to two minor prophets, Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And so we'll start with Habakkuk to explore the first half of this idea. We delight in the Lord 
And then we'll turn to Zephaniah to explore the second half, as the Lord delights in us. And let me also say this by way of disclaimer. I'm going to be predominantly more than usual speaking to those who call St. Peter's home and those who already consider themselves followers of Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're exploring faith and you're wondering, is this for me? I want you to know, yes, all of the promises that we talk about experiencing and asking for are readily available to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. So while I am speaking primarily to our family, I am also speaking to you. So open up your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on my high places. What Habakkuk is describing here is poetic, and it's, it's beautiful. And what we immediately discover about the joy he's talking about is that it is not based upon our circumstances. It is not contingent upon being in ideal situations. It doesn't depend upon pleasure or even basic needs being met and satisfied. Habakkuk is saying that his shelves are not overflowing with fig newtons, that he doesn't have the finest wine on tap or in box. You know, he, he doesn't have a refrigerator stocked with the best produce and meats, and therefore he has joy. He's saying that without all of these things, without any food, any sustenance, he has joy. He will rejoice. But if we're honest, this sounds idealistic rather than attainable. How can Habakkuk claim that he will delight in the Lord even if all is lost? Habakkuk, he lived in a time when Israel was unraveling at the seams. The good life, it was falling apart. And much of his book is this prayerful dialogue with God. And he asks difficult questions like, How long shall I cry for help and you not hear why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You see, Habakkuk, he watched corruption overtake God's people. He watched foreign nations begin to take their land, and he struggled with the world around him and how God was seemingly nowhere to be found. And when God answers him, the answer he receives isn't the easiest to hear. Another nation, the Babylonians, will come and execute justice on the Lord's behalf. Things are going to get better by things getting harder first. And so when we arrive at chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, the verses we're looking at, they're Habakkuk's closing declaration. So he's not espousing some idealistic dream from an ivory tower. He's living in the mess. He's watching life fall apart. He's struggling with God with difficult and painful questions. And from that place, that's where he makes this declaration. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stall. Figs, grapes, olives, they're all a sign of God's blessing in abundance. 
what Habakkuk is saying is even if there is no sign of God's blessing upon his people, even if there's no abundance, even if we run out of food altogether, even if we lose everything, he says, yet I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. If drought were to plague our lands, if animals died from incurable diseases, if all our trees became barren, if farmers could no longer provide for the many, if our grocery stores were boarded up, if our refrigerators were empty, if our water became impure and bottling plants went out of business, if chaos erupted in our streets, if we went from uh, scarcity to starvation with no nations around to help us, could we rejoice in God? Could we take joy in salvation? How is this possible for Habakkuk? This is a tall order. What we do see is that Habakkuk is making a decision. He says, I will rejoice. I will take joy. But he's not just choosing to see the glass as half full. He's not just trying to muster up some you know, eternal optimism. He's not just choosing to make the best of bad circumstances. He's choosing, he is willing to look beyond his circumstances to God. He is rejoicing in the Lord. He's choosing to remember who God is. He's choosing to seek after the truth about God, but he's also experiencing the delight of being in the Lord's presence. He will take joy in God's saving power. Habakkuk declares that he will find the will. He'll muster up the willpower. But how does he find the will to do this, even when everything around him is falling apart? How could we find the will, even if we're not going to have our nutritional needs met? Uh, Darya Rose is a neuroscientist and writes about why the dieting industry fails us. And uh, in her book, Foodist, uh, there is a chapter that she calls the myth of willpower. It's very helpful. And she explores the neuroscience behind willpower. And she says, we only have what, a single stock of willpower. We don't have like compartmentalized willpower, but just one total amount of willpower. And it gets depleted through different things like hunger or exercise or self-restraint in meetings, you know, by trying to keep our diets, whatever, sleep. All these things drain our willpower. And blood sugar, she says, blood sugar levels affect our willpower the most. And so the majority of people fail in their diets, not because they don't have a strong will, but because they're depleting their willpower simply by keeping the diet. And they're also then not getting the nutrition they need to feed their willpower because their blood sugar levels go all over the place throughout the day because of the changes to their nutrition. I bring all of this up to show that our willpower is finicky. Sometimes it's there and sometimes it runs dry. It's more biological than we realize. And so back to our question, how could Habakkuk declare that he'll find the will even if there's no nutrition to be found? This runs against our biology. How can he do this? And furthermore, compared to Habakkuk, we're in a utopia. Now we're... We're in a privileged position compared to him. We are so far removed from his circumstances that it's difficult for us to believe that this is even possible. It's hard for us not to read what he's saying as a nice sentimental thought, one that we love, but also one that we hope that we don't have to discover for ourselves. You know, we barely have the will to consistently eat well, 
to consistently go to bed at the same time every night, let alone to choose to rejoice in God even if we have no energy. We have a difficult enough time choosing to rejoice in God even when we do have the energy in ideal circumstances. So is what Habakkuk is suggesting, is what he is claiming to be doing, is it even possible or is it just idealism? Maximilian Kolbe was a Polish priest uh, who died as prisoner 16770 in Auschwitz on August 14, 1941. A prisoner had escaped from the camp, and so the Nazi guards selected 10 people at random to die for this man's disobedience. And one of the 10 selected to die cried out, my wife, my children, I will never see them again. And so Colby stepped forward and asked to die in his place. And to everyone's surprise, the guards granted his request. And one of the guards who oversaw Colby's death recorded what he witnessed. And he wrote this. The ten condemned to death went through terrible days. From the underground cell in which they were shut up, there continually arose the echo of prayers and canticles. At every inspection, when almost all the others were now lying on the floor, Father Colby was seen kneeling or standing in the center as he looked cheerfully in the face of the SS men. Father Colby never asked for anything and did not complain. Rather, he encouraged the others, saying that the fugitive might be found and then they would all be freed. One of the SS guards remarked, this priest is really a great man. We've never seen anyone like him. Two weeks passed in this way. Meanwhile, one after another, they died until only Father Colby was left. This, the authorities felt, was too long. The cell was needed for new victims. And so they gave Father Colby an injection of carbolic acid in the vein of his left arm. Father Colby, with prayer on his lips, himself gave the arm to the executioner. Unable to watch this, I left under the pretext of work to be done. Immediately after the SS men had left, I returned to the cell where I found Father Colby leaning in a sitting position against the back wall with his eyes open, his head drooping sideways. His face was calm and radiant. His face was calm and radiant. Father Colby was deprived of light. He was deprived of food, and yet he continued to pray and encourage and even hope. He died in the worst conditions we can imagine, with a calm and radiant face. How can someone be stripped of so much, treated with such indignity, and yet seem to find the will to do these things? It's not that Father Colby mustered this up within himself. Rather, long before this tragic event took place, Colby himself wrote in his journal about a vision he experienced as a child. Here's what he wrote. I asked the mother of God what was to become of me. He was a Catholic. Then she came to me holding two crowns, one white and the other red. She asked if I was willing to accept either of these crowns. The white one meant that I should persevere in purity and the red one that I should become a martyr. I said that I would accept them both. This was found in his journal many years before he actually became a martyr. God called Colby to martyrdom and equipped him for the task, even in its awful end. God provided the joy and the strength and even the will because God was with him, even in the darkest of nights. 
You see, we delight in the Lord as the Lord delights in us. Being able to delight in God depends solely upon God delighting in us. We put it differently. We delight in God because God delights in us. So track down Zephaniah. It's the next book after Habakkuk. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is the second half of our big idea that the Lord delights in us. You see, Zephaniah shared the same historical framework as Habakkuk. He only lived about 30 years before him, and he too watched Israel unravel. He actually lived through the first Babylonian invasion. He knows the difficulty. And so Habakkuk describes one side of the coin, our perspective and response to God, but Zephaniah describes the other side, God's perspective and response to us. When all is lost, when things are falling apart, when hope grows dim, when the lights are going out, God says, fear not, O Zion. Fear not, my people. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. No matter what, the saving power of God is to be found. This doesn't mean that every circumstance in our life will turn out the way we want. More often than not, they won't. But what it does mean is that no circumstance in which we are left to deal with on our, uh, will ever be left on our own. Whatever we face, the Lord our God is in our midst. And his saving power will always empower us to get through it. And sometimes his saving power will even change the world around us. Because God is with us. And because we know he's with us, we take comfort. We don't fear. This is why God can say to his people, let not your hands grow weak. Let not your hands grow weak. Because as Habakkuk said, the Lord is my strength. You see, we never face anything alone on this side of eternity. And what we do face in this side of eternity in our lives and in the world, we don't face it on our own strength. The Lord, our God, is in our midst. He gives us his strength. Therefore, fear not. Fear not. You see, this truth, if we get it, if it gets into our bones, this truth alone is enough to satisfy this truth alone, if we get it, that God is with us and for us, giving us strength so that we don't have to fear no matter what comes our way, this truth alone is enough to cultivate joy within the soul. Because if we are truly with the God who is with us in his presence, there is joy, there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. But Zephaniah is not content to stop at the delight and glory of God being with us. He tells us more about this God who is in our midst. What does he say? He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. He'll exult over you with loud singing. There's three actions here. Rejoice, quiet, and exult. And we're going to take them one at a time. But before we do that, a quick sidebar. Zephaniah speaks in the future tense. He says, God will 
do this. It's a promise, but it's also a guarantee. And what we discover in Christ is that every promise of God finds its yes and amen. And so we don't have to read these just as a future hope and promise, but a readily available reality in Christ Jesus that we can experience now, that we can experience more and more, and that we will experience in abundance and in uh, eternity forever. Until the new heavens and earth come, however, we can experience it now and grow in this experience. So first, God will rejoice over you with gladness. God will rejoice over you with gladness. God rejoices over his people with gladness. It could be more redundantly translated, God rejoices over you with joy. The posture God has for us, for his people, it's not stoic. God is not British, thanks be to God. God does not have a stiff upper lip. We don't have to guess what he's feeling toward us. It's not difficult to read his face. He's not subtle about it. God is rejoicing over us with joy. The God who is with you, he's with you because it gives him joy. He finds joy in dwelling with you. God rejoices over you. The person he has made, the person he has saved, the person he is redeeming. Which means you are not a burden to the God of the universe, but a source of joy. And God delights in saving you and walking with you. And God delights in being with you. The God who is with us is the God who rejoices over us. Second, God will quiet you by his love. God will quiet you by his love. This can be translated in a bunch of ways. God will give you rest by his love. God will renew or refresh you by his love. God will calm all fears by his love. In other words, the stirrings, the discontent, the unanswered questions, the frustrations, the hurts, the anxiety, the depression, the pain, the anger, the loss, God will quiet these things. He will calm them. He will refresh you by his love. God's love for his people, God's love for us, God's love for you, it's not passive. It's an action. It's not just something God feels towards us, but something God does towards us. God uh, um, takes expression in his love by seeking our, our healing and our wholeness and what is good. The God who is with us is the God who loves us. But it gets better still. Lastly, Zephaniah says, God will exult over you with loud singing. God will exult over you with loud singing. Exult is not a calm action or word. It's it's lively. It's expressive. It's to rejoice exceedingly. It's to be highly elated or jubilant. It's a big deal. I read a really great satire article that said riots erupt in heaven as the Cub fans finally celebrate first win in a hundred and whatever years. Like that is the sort of exaltation. Like when a, a arena of fans erupts over a victory, that is exaltation. 
And if you've ever been in that environment, you know it's anything but calm. It's massive and it's emotive and it's full. And so amplify this, multiply it, and then you have a sense of what God is doing here. But here's the thing. God rejoices over you. God rejoices over his people. When your team wins, whether you're at the stadium, a pub, or a bar at home with some friends, have you ever seen how people who are exulting, who get caught up in that moment of exaltation, they just spontaneously break out into song? Whether it's you know, a common song that they sing at victories or a national anthem, it's a means of celebration, of coming together in joy. Exaltation often leads to song. And so we read, God exalts over you with singing. God exalts over you, his people, with singing. There's so, something so profound and deeply intimate about having someone sing to you. Have you ever had someone sing to you? You can now if you want. I'll sing. But if someone writes you a love song and sings it to you, it's so deeply personal, it's powerful, it's moving, it, it gets to your heart. One time, uh, I decided to learn the song Green Eyes by Coldplay. And uh, originally, I changed the lyrics to Blue Eyes because that's the color of Julia's eyes. And uh, this is when I was doing my degree in seminary, and I was taking a break from homework, and we were just sitting in my home office, uh, and I just decided to sing her this song. There was absolutely no uh, forethought about the environment, no attempt to light candles or make it romantic. Uh, I just sang my version of Green Eyes, which was Blue Eyes. And it made her burst into tears of joy. And now some of you are feeling awkward. Why are you telling us this story? It is so intimate. It is so personal. It's none of our business. And you're right. It isn't. But I'm telling you only to try to help you understand what's going on in this text. God sings to you. God sings to you. He exalts over you with song. It's deeply intimate and personal, but at the same time, it's not private. Because it's not Calm singing, it's loud singing. It's unconstrained, it's robust and full, excited and boisterous. God woos you and he does so intimately and personally, but also publicly. All of creation will know God's song for his people. God will sing so loud that all the nations will hear of his profound love for you, his gladness and joy over you. He will sing over you because the God of the universe delights in you. The God who is with us is the God who sings over us. This morning, if you've ever settled for a picture of God less than this, now you know you should never settle for anything less than this, and there is more. God will rejoice over you with gladness. God will quiet you by his love. God will exalt over you with loud singing. This is the real joy that jumps under one's ribs and, and tickles down one's back. This is the joy that you wouldn't exchange for all the pleasures in the world. This is the good feeling produced by the Holy Spirit in the soul, the delight of seeing Christ. Because the good news, the really good news is there's nothing you have to do to make this reality true. 
It's a promise. It's what God does. It's who he is. You don't have to believe hard enough. You don't have to pray hard enough. You don't have to trick God into liking you. You don't have to try to get his attention. You don't have to prove your worth. All you have to do is come to him in faith. All of these promises are yes and amen in Christ. Which means if you trust in Jesus, these promises are yours. God is and will pour them out into your life. Which is why we can delight in the Lord. We delight in the Lord as the Lord delights in us. Or we delight in the Lord because the Lord delights in us. And when someone delights in us in this way, all we can do is respond with delight. You see, the lesson we learn from Habakkuk or Zephaniah, which we learn all throughout the New Testament, the challenges we face in the world, the suffering we face on this side of eternity, does not put God on mute. The darkest nights of the soul, the worst atrocities this world can offer, will not negate the promises of God. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Father Colby, they all knew this, and the Son of God himself knew it all the more. And we receive these great promises because God is with us. Jesus came and Jesus sent the Spirit. His Spirit is with us. These promises are ours because God is in our midst. So even in suffering, we can rejoice, not because we have the strength or can muster up the willpower, but because God is with us even when we don't have the strength or willpower to muster up rejoicing. God is with us. That is the joy of salvation. And it's just a glimpse. It's just two passages. When we first planted St. Peter's, before we ever started a home group gathering, uh, a community group, <coughs> before we ever had a service, uh, a, a woman uh, from Texas who I've never met sent me an email. And in the email, she quoted Isaiah 43, which says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. And she said, I believe this is for you, Alistair. I think God is doing a new thing in and through you. I, I tracked you down on the internet, and I felt the Lord tell me to give you this first. Now, I was very encouraged. God is doing a new thing, and I had discerned he wants to do a new thing in this city. Now, to be honest, I've met about 300 church planners who quote this verse and say, God is doing a new thing, because he is always doing a new thing through his people. But if, who, who is here for our, our year one anniversary? I'm just curious. All right, we've got some year oneers. Do you remember that I shared Isaiah 57? God had put this on my heart. Build up, build up. Prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. As I had retreated and gone to God in prayer over some time, this verse hit me that there's something God wants us to build up and prepare for, to remove every obstruction that we can, to have a single focus. And to be honest, that's the last time I've had a clear word from the Lord where I was like, this is what we have to do as a ministry. Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction, keep people moving toward Jesus. But I've been asking, Lord, what, is, what are we building up for? What are we preparing the way for? Habakkuk and Zephaniah. What I love about them is they embody the same cultural moment in time. And as the spirit of the Lord was upon them, they discerned what their culture need is the joy of salvation. And I believe God is speaking to us, his church, that we have been building up and preparing the way for the joy of salvation. 
that in this city, in this time, in this place, he wants a people who will pursue the joy of salvation, not just for their own benefit and experience, but to be a witness in a world that has no idea what real joy even is. So as we continue to pray for our church to bless this city and bless generations to come, I want to invite you to journey with me into this value, the joy of salvation. My hope for us as a church is that God might make this joy palpable through us. If we are going to be known for one thing in this city, let it be the joy of salvation. All right. You see, we were praying before the service, and uh, someone shared an image that I thought was apt. The joy of salvation is like trying to push an inflated ball into water. Like no matter what you do to push it down, it always rises back up. You see, I'm not calling us to try to put on fake faces or try to force ourselves to be happy or try to muster up some joy that doesn't really exist within us. What I am saying is put down your pursuit of happiness and replace it with the pursuit of Christ and ask him to grant you this joy. If our lives are going to be known for one thing, may it be the joy that Christ offers us because he saves us. If we're going to ask for one thing from God, may we be like David in Psalm 27. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. May the Spirit of God Open our eyes to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And may Christ himself grant us this joy of salvation.